0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I think it was two years ago that um, my brother-in-law coerced four of us into a Spartan race, I don't know if you know what a Spartan race is. It's where uh, you run about five to seven miles, and interspersed in that are all these physical competitions. Um, restated, it's an event in which middle-aged men pay money to get injured. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. So we're doing one again in June. If anyone wants to bump their premium insurance and, uh, and join us, feel free to. When that happened that day, we were in Charlotte. This is about two years ago. And we're all in line, and they have all these groups that go. And, and the group for ours finally came up. And I think there were, there must have been about 200 people in line at this point. And I was already feeling kind of nervous. And then the person said, are you guys ready to go? And then he said, how many of you right now are active or recently retired military? And I heard a very loud, hoorah, and three-fourths of the people raised their hands. And I knew at that moment I was in serious trouble. I did not belong there at all. And as uh, my fear began to, to rise and my anxiety began to rise, I did something that was just intuitive to me. It was second nature to me. I compared myself with the other people around me. They're bigger than I am. They have more resources than I do. I don't belong here. There's no way I could make it through here. But it was interesting to me that it was second nature to assume that I must not have what I need because I don't have what they have. Now, in today's passage... I'm so glad that we didn't cherry-pick the Ten Commandments. We're actually preaching through the entire book of Exodus, and here's why that's very, very helpful. Because today the Lord is going to say, don't steal, and He's going to say, don't lie, and He's going to say, don't covet. But do you remember what He's done for 20 chapters? They don't need to steal because God plundered the Egyptians to provide them all the money they could ever ask for. They don't need to steal because God gave them bread every morning in the wilderness that was sweet He gave them 70 springs of water, or 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water at Elam. And then he, from a rock, was able to satisfy the thirst of 2 million people. They don't need to lie because through the truth, God has set them free with a Passover lamb of his own provision. They don't need to covet. They don't need to want what their neighbor has. They need to look at what their God has. Remember in Exodus 3 when Moses said, Lord, I can't go. Don't you know my limitations of speech? But then the Lord explained to Moses, that is exactly why I'm going with you. So in today's passage, let's get to the heart right away. Christian, we don't need to steal. We don't need to lie. And we don't need to covet because we have the Lord. And with Him... He will provide everything we need. So this morning, let's ask God to, to pull out of our heart those things that keep us from trusting Him. When we are tempted to steal or tempted to lie or tempted to covet, it, it's because we distrust God and therefore we mistreat neighbor. So let's talk about our heart this morning. Here are some things that happen in our heart. We can have an inward obsession. Who will take care of me? I haven't been given what I need. I really deserve more. And then our inward obsession can move to a horizontal obsession. Look at what they have versus what I have. I have to have more than them. So this morning, instead of an inward obsession or a horizontal obsession, I'm praying God will move us to a vertical satisfaction. And that's why I've titled today's sermon, Satisfaction for coveting lying thieves. And if you'll turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, we'll continue and today actually close the Ten Commandments as we continue expositing the book of Exodus. So if you're using the Pew Bible, this is page 72. You'll want to turn there. Otherwise, follow along, please, in Exodus chapter 20. And if you received notes online or just the bulletin as you walked in, we're now at the first one, part one, do not steal. Look in God's Word, Exodus 20 verse 15 you shall not steal the hebrew word there ganaf means to carry something away that is someone else's lawfully throughout the bible this will give all the things that you think of when you think of stealing burglary robbery larceny hijacking shoplifting embezzlement extortion racketeering but today's passage we want to get at the heart behind it stealing is wrong because the lord provides Why would I take what He's provided someone else? Why would I fail to trust what He can provide me? I want to show you five examples, though, in the Bible where the Lord will unpack. Remember, the Ten Commandments are categorical. And so then later in the law, He'll give particular descriptions of ways you might flesh it out. Here's ways people might steal. First, through kidnapping or oppression. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, if a man is found stealing, One of his brothers of the people of Israel, if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. Purge that evil from your midst. So the Bible's always been very clear that to take a human and to enslave them as if they're your property is wicked and evil. The scriptures are really clear here. Second, it is sinful. To take property. You're in Exodus. Uh, I'll give you an example of case law. Will you turn a couple pages to Exodus 22 so you can give and see a particular way? This categorical commandment could be broken. Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Throughout the passage, God will continue that principle that if you take from someone else, the return will need to be multiplied. We see Zacchaeus do this almost intuitively when he repays fourfold what he had stolen from others. So third, a third example of ways we could steal is through dishonest business dealings. Now, all throughout the Bible, they have lived, of course, in a very different culture than we do. But there's a lot that the Bible says about dishonest weights, We don't deal with those very often, but but the idea was that when you're exchanging currency, you could easily sort of shave things or move things so that it looked like you had more than you actually did. Deuteronomy 25 says, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights. Now, there's a picture that I thought about showing you on the screen, but I'll just describe it to you. I think it's really humorous. It's a picture from the Saturday Evening Post. In 1936, it's a Norman Rockwell type of... so you probably have seen it. It's really funny. In the picture, there's a scale, and there's like a turkey on the scale, and there's this sweet little old lady who's pushing the scale up from underneath, and at the same time, the butcher is pushing the scale down from the top. That, that's the idea. The idea behind dishonest weights is they're going to take advantage of me, but not before I take advantage of them. Leviticus 6 gives us further warning on this. If anyone sins by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. So we also steal through misleading someone in a way that we can take advantage of them. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You should not be partial against the poor or defer to the great. This is also described as theft. So we could be in injustice or unjust in our dealings, which is also theft. So let me give some examples of what this might look like now. One way we could steal is through selling something to someone that they really don't need, and yet we've convinced them that they do. I think I've shared with you before, I, I there was a man who came to work on the internet here at our church, a Spectrum employee, and we just start to small talk about life, and he said many of the men at his company, who especially are in their first five to ten years in the company, whenever they go to someone's home who is elderly, they make it a goal to sell them things they know they don't need. So they go to a lady's home who only needs a phone, and by the time they've left, she has fiber optic internet and 600 channels that she doesn't know how to wield, right? But this is a just example today of stealing. Or if you're a builder and you know that You could get maybe a little more from the client, so you offer him more than realistically he needs. You're stealing from him by taking advantage of his ignorance. Or perhaps you've seen commercials. (laughs) These take advantage of us through advertising that is false. Have you seen a drug commercial in your lifetime? They often will promise things that are completely absurd, but they normally begin with a hook that would apply to anyone. Have you ever felt discontent? Have you ever had a bad day? Well, this drug, this is stealing. It's also stealing if we know that we have something that isn't quite what we've presented it as. If we sell something on Facebook Marketplace and we don't disclose that that one part is broken. We're stealing from someone else. We also steal, the Bible says, through omission. So failing to fulfill what God has given us with integrity and the commitment that God has called us to. We could do this through cutting corners in our calling, in our workplace, or in our our home. We could do this through self-absorption that doesn't care about those around us. I was really convicted the first time I read through David Platt's helpful book, Radical. In the book, he calls us to live for the Great Commission, and after reading it, I realized how often... I don't think about others and their eternal destination. And in doing so, I steal from an opportunity for them to hear the good news. Also, we read that the Bible talks to those who are employers or those in positions of influence about stealing through failing to pay appropriately. Leviticus 19.13 You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So a way you could steal is by not giving to someone what they've earned. I think it's worth quoting Philip Reichen, who writes, Employers often steal from their workers by demanding longer hours than the contract allows. They downsize their workforce to improve their profits and then make the remaining workers do all the work plus those done who were laid off. This is a sophisticated way to steal from employees. It's not a new way, though. Martin Luther in the 1500s described those in these kind of positions as gentlemen swindlers. I think that's a great description. A fifth way to steal is actually simply by making life unfairly difficult for someone else. So Leviticus 19.14 says, You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord. So you could steal by making life unnecessarily hard for someone else. So let's get back to the heart behind stealing. When we steal, what is happening in our heart that makes us think we ought to steal? I'd like to suggest three. I think one thing that could be happening in our heart is we could have a heart of entitlement thinking, well, I really deserve or I have earned this other thing. Probably the best example in the Bible is King David. King David is at a point in his life where he has been faithful to the Lord for years. The kingdom has grown. He has fought all of his wars. He's had incredible success. And instead of going to war with everyone else, he stays home. And from his house, he sees another man's wife. And he finds her attractive. And the heart process he has is essentially, I deserve her. I ought to have someone like that. No one should withhold from me what I'm worthy of. Stealing can come from an entitled heart. Stealing can also come from a fearful heart. When you think, boy, if I don't do this, then who will look out for me? A good example of the Bible is Rebecca and Jacob. Remember at the end, Isaac is going to bless his sons, and Rebecca comes in to Jacob and says, we need to steal the birthright from my other son, your older brother, Esau, because otherwise, what future could you possibly have? See, her fear and anxiety causes her to think it's okay to take something that belongs to someone else. A third way to steal is motivated by a heart that is simply unthankful. What I have been given is just not enough. I think the best example of the Bible is Judas Iscariot. In John chapter 12, they're debating over what should be done with perfume that is going to be anointed on Jesus. And Judas says, We should sell it and make money off of it. And then John tells us this, verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief who was in charge of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put into it. But think of the heart behind Judas. You have seen Jesus feed nearly 20,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, and you think you need to steal from the money bag? You don't. So the Scriptures tell us something amazing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. How? In Ephesians 4, this is possible because this person is united to Christ. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share. So now instead of taking... You're actually giving through the abundance of what God has allowed you to earn. I think Jerry Bridges is really helpful when he observed there are basically three attitudes we can take towards possession. Attitude number one is to say, what is yours is mine. This, of course, would be stealing. But the second attitude is to say, what is mine is mine. But this is also stealing. The only appropriate biblical attitude is to say, what is mine is God's, therefore I share it. So number one is do not steal. Now we'll go to number two, do not lie. Look in Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's worth noting that bear false witness refers to a legal context. So what you do when you're in a context where you need to give a report, you have the Bible open. Will you flip to Exodus 23? I'll show you an example of how it's referring to what you do when you're in court. Exodus 23. Let's look in verse one. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the enemy to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So this passage is most directly referring to what we would do in a legal context. But remember, the Ten Commandments are categorical, so it's not limited to lying in court, but dishonesty in any sense That would deal with our neighbor. So back to Exodus 20, verse 16. This is the only of the Ten Commandments that specifically states who it could be against. It says it could be against your neighbor, to which we would ask, who is my neighbor? And remember how Jesus answered that question. Anyone, anywhere in need. Douglas Stewart writes, in laws even, a neighbor has nothing to do with proximity or familiarity Your neighbor is any other human being you may have dealings with, actually or potentially. So here we read, do not lie. Now, I think there's a question you could ask at this point. I've been asked this many times. Josh, aren't there times though, where we're not supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Are there times where we don't need to share everything we know? I believe biblically the answer is yes. Let me give you a couple biblical explanations of that. In Joshua chapter two, the spies have gone into Jericho. In this time, they sneak into Rahab's room, her apartment, we might say. When they sneak in there, the text tells us explicitly that she has sent them another way in verse four. But then when the men come in from Jericho and ask her where they are, she says, I do not know where they are from and I do not know where they went. Those are both completely untrue. When James 2 explains what Rahab did, here's what James 2 says in verse 25. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. James is telling us in chapter 2 the moment where Rahab misled the people in Jericho was the moment she demonstrated saving faith. All right, I'll give you another example. 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 16, God is sending Samuel to anoint David. And Samuel says, but Saul, if he finds out that I'm going to go anoint David, he is going to kill me. So I'll read to you 1 Samuel 16. This is what the Lord says. Verse 2, And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So the Lord told Samuel to only tell Saul part of what he was doing, not all of what he was doing. Or in Exodus, we've been in Exodus, in chapter 1, remember Pharaoh was murdering all the baby boys, and the Hebrew midwives were commended for lying about where they had hid the babies. All right, so the question is, when do I need to tell the truth? And right now, if you're a teenager and you're thinking, awesome, I can lie to my parents. (laughs) Or if you're thinking, now I can lie to my boss, that is, I think, not at all what the Scriptures are saying. I think here's what they're saying. Truth must be our normal way of life. But there are rare exceptions where telling the entire truth would break God's other clear commands. These are very rare. But if someone was to ask me the hypothetical... Josh, if you were in Poland in the 1940s and you were hiding Jews in your basement and the Nazis said, are you hiding Jews in your basement, my conscience would feel totally clear not revealing that to them based on the scriptures I gave you. All right, so how does false witnessing happen today? How do we lie today? And let me give you four examples. The first way that the Bible will talk about that we lie or bear false witness against our neighbor is through twisting somebody else's words. Now, on the news, we have people who tell the same story, and they tell it so differently, we're not sure that they're telling the same story. But let's be honest, spin is not something just done on the television. Spin is something all of us are prone to do. We can talk about someone else and add a spin to it. I was at a biblical thinking seminar and the person who spoke did a really good job. He gave a very provocative sentence, but from that sentence he showed just the tone in which you say it can communicate a different meaning. The sentence was this, I did not say he beats his wife. And just by which word you emphasize, it changes the meaning. What if you say it this way? I didn't say he beats his wife. That one means you didn't hear it from me. I didn't say he beats his wife. That one means it happens, but I'm not communicating it to you that way. I did not say he beats his wife. means he beats somebody else's wife, apparently. Just in the way you give the tone, you can spin something. We need to be careful about the fact that when we're communicating about each other, we can communicate in such a way that we spin it so that we look good and they don't. This is why the Bible speaks very often about gossip, slander, and flattery. On Wednesday night, we went over these in Proverbs. Here's what Proverbs 25, verse 18 says. Telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an axe, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow. The Bible also talks about gossip particularly the gossip goes around telling secrets separating intimate friends rumors are dainty morsels that go down as choice into the one's heart Gossip is when I say something that I haven't determined or doesn't even need to be said slander is when I say something that I want to say even though it's hurtful to someone else Proverbs 10:18 Slandering others makes you a fool. And flattery is when I say something to someone's face so that I can manipulate them towards my purposes. Proverbs 29, verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. I really love the way Warren Wiersbe explained flattery. He said, flattery is when someone pats you on the back only to locate a soft spot in which they can put the knife. (laughs) Now, I want you to think for a second with me, if you would, at how casually... We can slander. Imagine a conversation like this. Man, she is just so mad at me. How do you know that she's mad at you? Did she tell you that she's mad at you? No, but the look on her face. So now you've said that you know something about someone else that's detrimental about their character without any substantiated warrant to make such an accusation. We can lie through slander. But we can also lie through jumping to conclusions without having warrant for them. Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is shame and folly to him. Proverbs 18.17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. First Corinthians 4, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Do we need to be discerning? Yes. But to jump to conclusions without warrant is wrong. There's one other area where the Bible talks about lying, and it says so much about it that I can't omit it today, and that is lying to yourself. Let me read some Scriptures to you. 1 John 1.8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. 1 Corinthians three verse eighteen: Stop deceiving yourself. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to become truly wise. Galatians 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. James 1, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. We can lie to ourselves by telling ourselves we are or aren't something contrary to the Bible. I think Peter Lightheart is helpful when he reminds us that in our digital age, telling the truth is so important and telling falsehood or slander is so easy. He writes, we are now spun in our mediated age by a whirlpool of rumor, innuendo, false accusation, slander, and libel. People are tried and condemned by online lynch mobs. We like or share tweets or posts even though we cannot confirm their accuracy. Martin Luther reminded us that the Commandment here, the ninth commandment, is not only not to lie, but to also assume the best of everyone else, to give others the benefit of the doubt. Yet we exaggerate the stupidity or malevolence of ideological adversaries so that we can score points. The church, he writes, I fear does no better. Christians fire up the digital kindling to burn supposed heretics without due process, humility, or care. Lying is something, too, that we can find emanating out of hearts that fail to trust the Lord. We can lie because we have an arrogant heart. I can talk my way out of this. We can lie because we have a fearful heart. If I don't gossip or flatter, they won't accept me. This is my only way to make sure I'm included and noticed and loved. We can lie because we have an inconsiderate heart. Well, I only told a falsehood. It's not that big of a deal. It's not going to affect their life very much. Remember, though, that when Jesus was crucified, he was done so on the account of false witnesses, as was Stephen in Acts 7. But this need not be the case for those who are in Christ. In Ephesians 4, verse 25, we read, Therefore put away falsehood, and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Rather than lying, we can be known for speaking truth Let me remind us this morning that truth does not necessarily mean something that's culturally easy or nice. In fact, most of the truth-telling that's done in the Bible is done by someone who, by telling the truth, puts themselves in a position of significant risk. Remember when Nathan told the truth to David, you've committed adultery to the king who could have had him executed. When Elijah told the truth to Ahab and Jezebel and then did have to flee for his life or think of John the Baptist who had the gall to tell Herod you're not allowed to take your brother's wife and he was beheaded for it and yet Jesus said of him there's never been a greater prophet so remember this morning that truthful correction is an expression of love not hate let me quote Lightheart again he writes we stumble on the flip side of our disorder While we gleefully spread gossip, we tiptoe gingerly around the truth. We say we're tolerant and want to avoid triggering, but we're cowards and hateful cowards to boot. If we can't tell the truth, we cannot identify real evils. And if we're forbidden to name problems, we cannot propose solutions. Now, number three, look down in Exodus 20, verse 17. We're finishing the final three of the Ten Commandments. Do not steal. Do not lie. But now look at Exodus 20, verse 17. You'll notice it's surprisingly long. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It is so long. Why is it so long? That's the question I kept asking. Many of the others are only two words in Hebrew. And here, this one is maybe the longest. I think, I think by God's grace, I might know the answer. Can you count with me? Get ready to see with your fingers how many times you read the word neighbor or a pronoun in his place. Ready? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. How many did you count? Seven. I think this is the reason. To let us know you don't need anything that God has given to someone else. God has given you everything you need today. And you can trust Him to give you everything you need tomorrow. There is nothing your neighbor has that you actually need. The tenth Commandments end, interestingly, because the other nine are almost all about something particular, something that you can put your fingers on, something concrete. But here the Tenth deals with something inward, your heart, your heart motivations, the desire to want what belongs to someone else. Now, the word covet, to be clear, is a morally neutral term. It's not wrong to desire. So maybe a good translation would be, Crave. It's wrong to crave what God gave to someone else and I think, I have to have that in order to be complete. Coveting doesn't just say, I want a house. It says, I want his house. It doesn't just say, I want a job. It says, I want their job. It doesn't just say, I want a life. I want their life. You can covet in so many ways. I think you can covet by looking up at what you think someone else has it's better than you. I think you can covet by looking down. Let me give you an example of both. Here's how we covet by looking up. We have multiple kids in our house, and so Christmas is always one of those times where we try to organize them so that they open presents in order. And there's something about the human condition that maybe you've observed as well. The first person opens their present, and they are so happy. This is great. I got a present. This is such a cool gift. Until the second person (laughs) opens their present, and it seems like a cooler gift than the one the first one got. I mean, you got the robot that doesn't even need batteries I don't want this trash. So you you covet first by looking up at what you think someone has that's greater than you. But you can also covet by looking down and saying what I have should not be had by anyone else. It's only for me. My favorite example of this is the book of Jonah. So Jonah is thankful that he has the grace of God, but he doesn't think anybody else should get the grace of God. This is my privileged status. It's not for anybody else. And God finally exposes Jonah's heart in Jonah chapter 4 when he has a plant over him that's protecting him from the dry, hot sun. And when the plant withers, Jonah loses it. You know, everything that's been bubbling up, he finally just lets it rip. God, I cannot believe you would take away my plant. And God is like, you're mad about the plant? You better believe I'm mad about the plant. I deserve the shade. And God's like, you're going to let all them die? Because he points out that in his heart, his attitude was, the privileges I have ought not be shared by anyone else. They're for me alone. So we can covet by looking up. We can covet by looking down. And coveting is a good summary of all the nine that came before it. Because all the nine get at this heart question, if I had fill in the blank, then that would be enough. Number 10 encapsulates the proceeding. If I just had fill in the blank, that would be enough. Now if we're honest, the tenth shows us that we have hearts that need to be saved. Michael Horton is a Christian theologian and he was having a conversation with a Jewish rabbi. And the Jewish rabbi said to Michael Horton, the difference between Christianity and Judaism is you Christians think that you've committed a sin just by desiring it or thinking it in your heart. We believe you have to actually act on it before it's sin. Otherwise, we think we'd be sinning all the time. To which Michael said, exactly, we are sinning all the time. God judges us not only for what we act on, He's clear on this throughout the Bible, but especially in the Sermon on the Mount, but also what our heart wants, what we desire. The last commandment then, Martin Luther says, is addressed not to those the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people commended as honest and virtuous because they've not offended the preceding commandments. Luther finishes this commandment more than any of the others, convinces all of us we are sinners who need a Savior. Here's the heart behind coveting, which With each one of these, I've given you three examples of heart motivations that may lead us to do it. Let me give you three examples of heart motivations that may lead us to covet. The first, I believe, is an entitled heart. I deserve what that other person has. My favorite example in the Bible is 1 Kings 20. There's a wicked king named Ahab, and he lives close to a man named Naboth, who has this beautiful vineyard that he has tended to his entire life. And Ahab tries to get the vineyard from him. Naboth won't give it to him because in the Old Testament, ancestry meant you were supposed to keep your land for your future inheritance. And so Naboth, we read this, goes back. This is a grown man. Lays down on his bed, turned his face away, and wouldn't eat any food. His wife Jezebel came to him and they concocted a plan to murder Naboth and steal his vineyard. But it all started with I ought to have what they have. All right, second example of the heart. Coveting also comes from a lustful heart. I have to have this in order to live. If I don't experience this, I haven't experienced life. My favorite example of the Bible is 2 Samuel verse 13. It's graphic. It's about a man named Ammon. Ammon sees a woman named Tamar. Here's what we read in 2 Samuel. Samuel 13, verse 1, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David's son Ammon was infatuated with her. That word is helpful, infatuated. And eventually, throughout the rest of the passage, he coordinates events so that he can rape Tamar. And then he wants nothing to do with her. Because in his mind, if I had this, then my life would be complete. But of course, that isn't what satisfies us. Third, coveting comes from an entitled heart or a lustful heart. But now third and finally, coveting comes from an unthankful heart. What I have been given is not enough. My favorite example is Joshua 7. In Joshua 7, they are told that they are to take nothing from the enemy that God has destroyed. But Achan sees treasure and he steals it and he keeps it. But here's where knowing the context of the Bible is so important. Do you know what happens before Joshua 7? Do you know what happens in Joshua 6? God brings the walls of Jericho down without them moving a muscle of military might. So here God can make them walk around like buffoons, frankly, and then cause the walls to come down by his own glory and power. And yet the very next chapter, Achan's attitude is, well, if I don't take this for myself, I'll never have what I need. See, coveting always comes from the belief that what God wants for us cannot be as good as what we want for us. James chapter 4 says this, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. But what is the solution? Do you know in the next part of the verse? You have not because you ask not. You don't need to take when you have the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you don't need to ask amiss on your own passions. Ephesians 4, again, is worth referring to. In the new self, we need not covet or take advantage of our neighbor. Instead, we can give grace to our neighbor. So here's the Lord, Yahweh. He has liberated the Israelites from slavery. And now, through the Ten Commandments, He intends to liberate them further yet from the slavery of sinfulness. But if we're honest, we know that the rest of the story is one that's disappointing. God brings Israel out, and we'll see Israel will be unfaithful, and Israel will be unfaithful again and again. And there are people who do, praise God, trust the Lord, but there are many, many who will not. And so here's what God says to the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You don't need to steal. I'll provide for you from the Egyptians, from bread, from a rock. I'll provide for you. You don't need to lie. I'm the truth. I'll deliver you. You don't need to covet. You don't need to want what your neighbor has. Want what your God has. He'll bring you everything you need. But Hosea 11 is much sadder in verse 2. Verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son and I loved him. But now verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more the Lord loved them, the more the Lord called them, the more on the whole the nation of Israel went away. Which is why the next time Hosea is quoted in the Bible is so remarkable. Because in Matthew 2, God has sent through an angel... Joseph and Mary, and baby Jesus to Egypt so that they are not murdered, Jesus, by Herod. And then when they return, the Bible says this in Matthew 2, verse 15. When they came back out of Egypt, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. See, God called Israel out of Egypt, and they disobeyed, and they disobeyed, and they disobeyed. But God called Jesus out of Egypt and he obeyed. And the more he was called, the more he loved the Lord. Jesus was tempted to steal. His family told him to take advantage of his position for political posturing and to gain more political influence. And Jesus said, it's not the right time. My hour has not yet come. I will do the Father's will. Jesus was tempted to lie. He stood before Pilate on trial. Pilate was equivocating. Pilate said to him, Are you the king? Jesus said, Thou hast said it. Jesus was tempted to covet after 40 days without food and without water. Satan met him in the wilderness, and Satan said, since you're the Son of God, why don't you come and take the kingdoms of this world? I'll give you all of them. You can have the crown of glory without the crown of thorns. Jesus' answer is no. (laughs) Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Now, can I tell you something I've observed in my own sinful heart? When I obey, when I do well, I want to live comfortably. I want to ease into retirement and just self-blessing. Every Sunday night, I feel this temptation to be really transparent with you. It's like, well, I've really worked hard today. Let's get out some Oreos, make the kids go somewhere else and watch Sunday night football. (laughs) I don't want to be bothered now. Here's Jesus, perfectly obedient. And what's the reward? The cross. Jesus goes to the cross where he is cursed. Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three, describing coveting, lying thieves. Cursed is anyone who hangs from the tree. But don't you know Jesus was cursed so that you and I could be blessed. Jesus was crucified so that we could escape the wrath and consequences that we've accrued. Jesus suffered in the middle of criminals as a coveting, lying thief because He bore our sin. And so here's the power today that will break coveting, lying, theft in your own heart. Here's a Scripture I'd like to encourage you to memorize this week. Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with Your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You see, when you are satisfied in the morning with the love of God, that God loves you, that Christ died for you, that He has done everything for you, and that He will give you everything you need, then that moves you from a taker to a sharer. Let Him no longer steal, but give. You see, when ingratitude controls my heart, then I think I have the right to take. But when I'm in awe that God loves me, and I know that all I have is from Him that it frees me to give. Romans 8.31 What shall we say for these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, will He not also graciously give us all things? When we have a God who does that, can I give whatever He's given me to those who need it? Number two, it moves us from liar a truth teller. We lie because we care most about our own reputation, how people think of me. But when the steadfast love of the Lord renews me each morning, then my reputation is not very important. God loved me when I was at my worst. When I was a sinner, Christ died for me. So I don't need to spin my reputation when I have Jesus as my personal advocate. And therefore, I don't need to be crushed by criticism when it's fair. And I don't need to be afraid to speak hard truth to others. Jesus is the truth who sets me free. And third, if I'm satisfied in the morning with the steadfast love of the Lord, then I can move from covetous to content. You know Philippians 4. Not that I speak in respect of want, but I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed to be both full or hungry, to abound or suffer need. How? You know the verse, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, in the depths of my heart, I can only covet if I think, you know what, I don't think God has been good enough to me. But let's pause for a minute. Is that really true? Has God been good to you? has. Has He withheld good things I deserve, or has He given me much more than I deserve? Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When I have that bedrock promise, when I can be satisfied in the morning with God's steadfast love, then I can be freed from the temptation of being a coveting lying thief, freed and forgiven. So this morning, look to Jesus and find satisfaction for coveting lying thieves. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that we don't need to steal when we have a Lord who can plunder the Egyptians, give bread in the wilderness, and water from a rock. Thank you, Lord, that we don't need to lie when we have the truth that sets us free. We are worse than we would ever want to admit, and yet we are more loved than we could ever hope or deserve. Lord, free us from the truth of coveting. Free us from the temptation of it to think if I only had what they had. Help us to realize that if we have you, we have more than we could ever need. Perhaps someone this morning needs to call on the name of the Lord because the truth is they have yet to experience that satisfaction. May they see, Lord, that the coveting, the lying, the stealing, the strife with our neighbor, the hatred we have within, and the depths of anxiety in our heart only reveals we have a breach vertically with the Lord who made us. So help them to come to Jesus Christ who died for us and who lives to intercede for us now. But as Christians, we still need Jesus. So Lord, help us today to again realize that you are so good to us. You will provide for us. And the grace that has brought us safe thus far will lead us safely home. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcralee.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.